You're listening to the Theosophia Podcast, curated by Kelsey Davis and Sarah Elizabeth Smith. Be sure to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Theosophia and consider supporting this labor of love project for women's empowerment. This week's episode features Margaret Ernst. Margaret learned what she knows about faith, justice, and radical imagination from organizing alongside clergy, public school parents, airport workers in Philadelphia, and immigrants defending themselves and their families from deportation and detention in Tennessee. Having benefited from many spaces of nurture and others' investment in her own leadership and self-reflection, Margaret loves to hold sacred space based in personal stories, place, and history in order for changemakers to deepen relationship and grow their collective leadership and courage. She is currently a program manager with Faith Matters Network, which catalyzes personal and social change by equipping community organizers, faith leaders, and activists with resources for connection, spiritual sustainability, and accompaniment. Margaret holds a special commitment to equipping fellow white people to take action against racism. She contributes to The Word is Resistance, a podcast project of showing up for racial justice focused on what the word is for white people resisting racism from weekly lectionary texts. Margaret will be ordained into the United Church of Christ this September as Associate Minister for Community Engagement for Chestnut Hill United Church in Philadelphia. Last, but certainly not least, Margaret loves to sing and laugh at all costs. Here's Margaret. So Margaret, yeah. You you are a dear friend and you are many things in this world. You're a community organizer, an activist, program manager at Faith Matters Network, um, partner and all of the things. Um, mm-hmm. but I'm curious um, in your in your identities, you know, how do you describe yourself? I have re- recently started recognizing how much I'm a singer and how I in the in the story of my path to where I am now, um, I started being suspicious about religion. I suspicious in a good way, like not, you know, it, curious. Maybe it's a better word. Curious about faith and religion and spirituality, um, by way of just singing in church choirs and church being a place where I could let my voice just flow out when a culture that was otherwise very paralyzing in many ways. Um, I grew up in really wealthy town in Connecticut that was extraordinarily white and homogenous. And then my family's path changed a lot after that when uh, we lost a lot of our financial resources through a number of events that happened. And then through even more events that I'm sure I'll talk about, when you ask me more questions, um, things changed a lot. And so the kind of world I grew up in that was that suburban Connecticut, um, very Stepford Wives, that world, uh, really, really shook underneath me. And I think singing uh, was something that was consistent. And I still find that in music in general, um, 
I still find that when I'm feeling hesitant about my work in the world or when I am need some clarity or need to be grounded or powerful or like access my wisdom and my magic that singing helps me do that. And it's how I think I, you know, I think of voice as an instrument. And so, um, and all of us just have different instruments, right? And we, for me, organizing is an instrument, I think through which I am an instrument of the divine and activism and faith, you know, chaplaincy, friendship, long, thorough emails. <laughs> That's mostly what I do at Faith Matters Network. <laughs> like painfully <laughs> thorough administrative emails with the spirit of compassion and grace. <laughs> and try to, I'm good at big visioning. Somewhat frazzled, often deeply rooted <laughs> um, singer turned clarinet player turned organizer turned pastor. It's beautiful. Um, I love what you just shared about um, that, that there are different sort of instruments or ways that we can express and share our gifts and, you know, connecting to that for me, it's easily my body and being yeah. in my body and anything that's movement oriented um, helps, helps me to access that too. Singing is not my forte. Mm -hmm. I, I will sing, but I am a terrible, uh, yeah, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Well, that's what's so great about church, right? It's like, I mean, I would always get, I still do. I get like a little bit of ego burst, like boost in church because I feel like I have a pretty good voice and like, um, it's just a chance to like to do it. Uh, but yet I remember growing up and like my mother who will probably not listen to this, um, really doesn't have a good voice. <laughs> no, but she would probably don't. Like nobody in my family can really hold a tune at all, um, besides me. And so, but singing next to them though was a small space of vulnerability um, in a you know in a, in this world that I grew up in that like did not didn't did not offer a lot of vulnerability or feel a lot of comfortable with vulnerability. Mm. I'm curious your path into such courage and your your path into such a deep commitment to um, being part of movements that are liberating and that are that are healing and reconciling that are are justice centered. Um, how did how did you get there? How did you get here? Mm -hmm. There was part of me that I think from a very young age always sensed something about my environment and like the, we didn't fit in because we weren't the cream of the crop we, where we were. And so we were, even though it was a really wealthy community, like there was, there was always someone who had more, right? And that gap just like didn't make sense. You know, it was like why I would feel ashamed or why I would feel some kind of class stigma around people I grew up around or and you know their families was just like so silly um because we you know we absolutely had everything we needed so I think I had a sense from a young age that there was some kind of absurdity there was some kind of um dissonance and like a thing that didn't make sense about what about the value systems um where I grew up and some of which I inherited my family extended family but also inherited really beautiful things from my my family too so 
Um, but that, that general awareness, I think, of, of things, um, of like where value was being placed, not making sense, was really uh, kicked further when my parents got divorced. Uh, but then a few years after that, my um, person I had known as my father growing up came out to me first um, when I came out to her as trans woman. So I was dating, I was dating a woman at the time. This was when I was about 19 and I had, I wanted to tell my dad about it because um, it had not gone well with some other family members. And I had, I had a strong feeling that maybe might go well with my dad. Um, so I said, Hey, I have something to tell you. And it was, this was a very high stakes moment because my girlfriend at the time was actually like with, or was like, she was in a different, um, she was like in the area trying to visit with us and I needed a, for a place for us to stay. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't going to work out at um, my mom's house. So I was, <laughs> there was a lot of writing in this conversation. I was like, you know, I'd invited her to my home and, and so we needed, we needed a home to go to. And so I said, Hey, I'm dating a woman. And again, I'll say my, you know, I'll use language of my dad just for the sake of this story. Um, my dad looked at me with kind of a glimmer um, and like without missing a beat in the, or without me even having a chance to really breathe, <laughs> said, well, I am a woman. Hmm. Hmm. And so I then got a chance that evening to catch up on the entire true story of her life. Um, or like the closest to the truth that, you know, I could understand at that time and she could be telling me. And it turns out that she had from a very young age um, known that she had been assigned the wrong gender at birth in like 1950s suburban Chicago um, and really struggled throughout the, the vast majority of her life. Uh, childhood, middle years, and in the time that she was my dad. Um, and so that night, you know, she showed me her closet of women's clothes and makeup. And like, it turns out that she was like way more feminine than I ever was. Um, so that was like, we got to laugh about that. And she got to like give me clothing advice. And I got to be like, oh, I don't wear pink. <laughs> Uh, but I'm loving it on you. <laughs> and actually my first, Kelsey, my first lipstick slash like lip balm I've ever got was like through, uh, was like digging through Carla's name. So her name was Carla. Um, her, her, yeah, her true name when, when she came out and um, eventually came out to everybody in her life. So I still like I have um a bunch of lipstick and I now purchase lipstick at myself and I really like wearing lipstick now but my first like first guts that I got to actually wear red lipstick was from 
she was like, oh yeah, I don't need that. Cause she had so many, <laughs> like every shade of scarlet. So um, that was a big turning point. And I was also, I think by that point, like I mentioned, we had, we no longer had the kind of like money that we had access to when I was little. So um, I, it was, and then that became increasingly true because Carla as a, though my parents were separated, um, I had to walk alongside her um, as a child of a parent who, even though she had been a white man in like public relations for a majority of her life, was now in a situation of having come out um, as a woman. And even though she had white privilege of whiteness in that body, she was not able to get uh, work in her field and she was, had, you know, was attacked um, a couple of times on the streets and pretty, pretty hurt and, you know, struggled. Um, and without work, everything sucks, right? Because you can't pay your rent. So, so, you know, struggled with eviction, struggled with um, a bunch of things that my, that I had not experienced growing up, but then as a kind of adult and young person was working with, you know, working through with her. Um, so I, by that point, I mean, everything you know i was i was completely open i was i was ripe for the picking for movement <laughs> because i had realized that the structures and value systems and the systems that had been seeming to benefited me as a child um, were not working and were actually really hurtful to the people i loved and including carla but also other members of my family um, who had you know not made it essentially and I, in college, studied religion mm. and had, had the benefit of learning from some amazing um, history professors who showed me and schooled me on um, the reality and the brutality of white supremacy in the United States and across the world and was exposed to a lot of theologians who really deepened my faith. Um, and then I eventually found my way into faith-based community organizing. Mm -hmm. an incredible incredible journey mm -hmm. um i'd love to to open space um for you to share more about where where you are with carla at this moment mm -hmm. and what what in very recent events yeah you, you mentioned vulnerability a few minutes ago mm -hmm. and um you are good at sharing sharing oh. honestly and from a place of vulnerability um mm -hmm. So, so what's, what's transpired recently and maybe, um, you know, speaking a little bit to which, what spiritual season maybe you're in and, and what you're learning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Carla died very suddenly on June 5th of this year. Mm. Yeah. So about, it's August now, about a month and a half ago, um, two months ago. I got a phone call um, that, like I was saying before we turned the recording on, um, I had always dreamed about getting a similar phone call from Milwaukee um, saying that she was dead. And I had multiple times dreamed about her being either attacked, um, killed or suicide or like many other ways, which um, tragically a lot of trans people die too young. Um, 
because of what people have, what people have to face. And I did get a call uh, that she died and I had just been about to pick up my phone to call her because we were going to be giving her um, our car. And so I was going to be driving, I was like arranging to drive up to Milwaukee and give her our car because her car was pretty terrible. And, but it was my sister telling me she had gotten a phone, phone call um, from a detective in Milwaukee um, saying that Carla had been found in her bed, um, that she had died, that it appeared to be peaceful, that there were no signs of foul play. And so that's when I got that very strange mix of emotions that really stuck with me throughout the immediate aftermath of her death and still now, which is in um, profound sense of loss and like that hole, right? That hole you get mm. in your belly um, when someone that close to you is, is gone and someone that you came from, especially. Mm. Yeah. Someone that carries parts of you and vice versa. So that hole was and is still really intense. Um, and at the same time, I was especially after we found out from the autopsy um, that it did appear to be a peaceful death and that it was actually a sudden blood clot to the lung, to her lung, mm. which she didn't know about it. Doctors didn't know about and that she probably didn't even wake up. I felt and feel an incredible sense of gratitude and peace. Um, even while holding a lot of, hard questions about why this happened and and it's holding a lot of sadness. Uh, but I, um, yeah, I, it, Carla was a quite a, um, a big personality. Like she always had, always had a, like nine different jokes up her sleeve that she would have been practicing. And like, in fact, I found um, a list and I had always thought she just like remembered these all the times. So it turns out on her computer that like I had to look through, you know, for a bunch of things after she died, mm. I found documents on her computer with actually like the lists of her like regular jokes. <laughs> um, so like she would say things like, Oh yeah, well I couldn't afford to go to sex fifth Avenue. So I went to sex fourth Avenue. <laughs> <laughs> um or like oh gosh I can't remember she had a bunch of jokes like that with the like um numbers but it was constant so like it was like her funeral um was actually standing room only mm. in Milwaukee where she lived and people that she met as from every part of her life and actually including parts like before when she was presenting as male um, and now. And so it was everyone from like childhood friends to a person, it, this is a true story, somebody who, so Carla for a while re, worked um, in Milwaukee as a, basically selling toasters in a department store. Mm. Um, and she always talked about how like she was really well loved by the customers and like was winning all these awards for selling like appliances, which like she hated appliances, like <laughs> but she could sell anything. And 
she would crack people up all the time. And so there's this one person who reached out to me on Facebook who, when she found out that, when, when he found out she was dead. And he said, hey, I just wanted to tell you that I heard about your parent, about Carla's death. And I want you to know that I was a customer at, at the Boston store, this department store she worked at. And I was looking for like an appliance for my new apartment because I had just moved and I had just gone through a divorce and was in like one of the worst weeks of my entire life. And I don't, I don't, I didn't think I was going to make it through. Like I didn't think I would get through that week at all. Um, and he said that Carla started talking to him and like making him laugh and, and eventually they started talking more and he told her that about what was going on. He just gotten divorced that like, he just didn't know what to do. He was at like a breaking point. He was at like the bottom, you know, really bottom, um, bottom of the bottom. Um, and Carla said, well, why don't you apply for a job here? Cause he didn't have a job. Um, and he said, oh, well, okay, maybe. And she brought him over to the like job application spot in the store. He applied for a job and he got the job and then eventually worked there. And it like, he, you know, he, it helped him like pay rent that month and get, get through. Um, and then they became friends at the department store. And so he came to her funeral and he was the first one in line mm. to meet me at the receiving line. And that's just an example of the way she impacted people. And he was one of hundreds of people who came. Um, so like going back to that, what we were talking about, about courage, right? And kind of courage I felt in those quotes from Audre Lorde and from um, Rand Braden. Like people always talk to Carla about how courageous she was and all this stuff. And she was like, I don't, you know, it's not that I'm trying to be courageous. I'm just trying to survive and be my authentic self and be my real me. And so after her, after now that she's gone, at least like from this world, I have felt the honor to start feeling more of her channeling through me, her good parts and her energy, her humor, her creativity. She played, she played, um, instrument, like she played six different kinds of woodwinds and was in two community bands in Milwaukee and in rural Wisconsin. Um, so I'm, I'm feeling her vivacity and audacity channel through me. And that feels uh, like something I couldn't have imagined before. Mm. What a, what an incredible gift. And, um, and I would say as, you know, as someone who's known you through divinity school and um, I sat in class with you and listened to you reflect and watched you work and move through the world that that um, the impact that Carla, you know, is still making and was making while on earth is absolutely something that was um, in your, in your sphere too. You've always been channeling her and um, you know, now to feel that sort of at a, at a deeper level, um, just enhancing what has always been the case. And mm -hmm. I love the image of, of picturing Carla um, bringing, bringing that stranger or a new friend over to try to help them mm -hmm. get to the next stop of, mm -hmm. of what that person needed. And so much of, of your work in calling the world as, um, 
community organizer and activist, as friend and accompanier of people, mm-hmm. um, as minister is, mm-hmm. um, is that, right? Is, is sort of how do we help each other get to the next safest yeah. place, the next level ground, um, yeah. higher ground. And, um, and so I'm curious, Margaret, if, if you can share a little bit about um, what, you, what you do in the world, um, you know, as, as program manager with Faith Matters Network and, um, you know, ha- having heard you talk about Carla, it's like it, it kind of makes a little bit more sense now. So I didn't know the, I didn't know the story. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what, what, do you, what do you do? I feel very different. Um, now than I did even in my early work of organizing and like my emergence into activism just because of some of the experiences I've had and things I've seen and um, relationships I've been in. So I was trained by um, the folks at what used to be called PICO, People Improving Communities Through Organizing, which is now called Faith in Action. So I was trained as an organizer in a very specific organizing tradition, um, which is called Alinsky-style organizing after uh, the organizer in Chicago, Saul Alinsky. And that is in congregation-based organizing, so bringing congregations together across religious difference, um, class, racial difference, to make change in their community that they identify based on what keeps people up at night and what is where people hurt um, and what they dream for their community. Power, my organization at the time, um, which still exists, is called Philadelphians Organized to Witness, Empower, and Rebuild. Um, Power and Faith in Action were responsive to Mike Brown's death in Ferguson when he was killed five years ago to this week by Darren Wilson. And in that first week, five years ago, my boss at the time and other uh, lead organizers in the organization and other colleagues in the network went to Ferguson. Um, and at the time, there wasn't, there was like not, um, there were both like explicit calls to action for people to come from outside. And there was also just like a general instinct that people were just going to Ferguson and that people were the, in that community um, in the face of a lot of police violence and the violence of the state demonstrated what we all needed to be doing and it woke us all up um so for me knowing my colleagues were there and in danger and then going to Ferguson myself a couple of months later when there was a call for people to come from across the country for a weekend called Ferguson October um that a lot of a lot of um, it helped me clarify what kind of risk I needed to be willing to take as a white person and what kind of risks I needed to be willing to call other white people into as far as certainly emotional risks, spiritual risks, you know, the willingness to be uncomfortable, mm-hmm. um, the willingness to not be right, the willingness to be uncertain, but also physical body risks. Mm-hmm. So making the decision to go out um, in some of the evening protests that, you know, you didn't know what was going to happen. Um, and you didn't know, you know, whether things would look like the way they had in that August, the first weeks in August, 
or how the police would react. Um, so I think that shifted my capacity to then realize what it really meant to make sacrifices and to, uh, but not sacrificing in a, in a way that asks us to empty ourselves of, you know, what we need or like, you know, empty ourselves of our true selves, but rather to live into our more truer and more alive selves by way of following a God that became human and took on um, the brutality and the pain um, of what humans have to face every day. So I think that my, ever since then, I've become more clear in not only being really committed to and having a deep respect and belief for faith rooted organizing and an organizing that comes from a place of spirituality um, or in, and like dream space and that comes like a lot of different things sometimes it's organized religion sometimes it's not um but we have to have a well of spirit that we're drawing on so it's helped me be clear about that but it's also helped me be clear within my role in it and specifically intervening upon the kind of white Christian supremacy and spiritual bereftness that has colluded with and, and um, been an instrument of evil. And I think that has, that's shaped where I feel like my call needs to be. Mm -hmm. Yes. So you just named a lot, but, but particularly white Christian supremacy um, and a Christianity that has been, um, you know, a colonial Christianity, a Christianity that's been co-opted by an empire and a regime that um, continues to make sure that violence is a method of control, right? And then you are also identify as a Christian, and you're about to be ordained soon um, in in the UCC tradition. So. For you, Margaret, in all that you've shared with us and in all of the, the doing and the goodness that you are involved in in this world, what is it about the gospel? I mean, what, like, why do you still say yes to, to this thing, this, this institutional thing? Um, and, and what is the gospel to you? I mean, what is the good news of this stuff? Um, have at it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm preaching this Sunday on Hebrews 11, in which Paul talking to other Jews under Roman occupation in a time when it was very likely their main temple, um, you know, could have been destroyed at any minute um, and then would be destroyed. He wrote, faith is the conviction um, of things not seen, is the promise of things hoped for. And I think that I believe in the good news that there is always a possibility for imagination. And I believe that there is always something to be said for having conviction in things not seen. And I think that we have seen from people who have struggled uh, against deep pain and unfairness and un injustice and inhumanity time after time again, 
from the dawn of, I mean, I wasn't there from the dawn of time, but I can, I can certainly, you, you know, you hear it, right? You hear those voices in the Bible. Um, you hear the voices when we watch the news every day in our own, in our own communities um, and in our own stories of what happens when we trust that something else is possible, even when there's no evidence that it should be when the entire logic of everything around you is telling you that there's no there's no use in having hope there's no use in um, articulating some other kind of vision there's no use in trying to live into a different logic and so i think that i've experienced myself um, what it's like to close my eyes and not know what the future looks like and to yet feel a small, like even just the smallest seeds that it's worth trusting in things that are not seen. I love, I love the, um, the space that you open and what you just shared about imagination. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if we want to use the term a prophetic imagination, mm -hmm. that that there can be a different order, a different system, a different reality. Some call the kingdom, some call the kingdom um, of, but not something that's that's so far off on the horizon that we just mm -hmm. sort of bear bear it until we can get there. But mm -hmm. something that we have a responsibility mm -hmm. to enact now, right? Theological terms, you know, it's it's a realized eschatology already in the not yet. I hear so much in your work as community organizer of of making that possible mm -hmm. um, and being held accountable to the dream of God, um, where all people are flourishing and nourished and have have what they need, both in bread in their hands and spiritual food in their souls. Um, and, and I know that you have been involved in movement chaplaincy and that mm -hmm. movement chaplaincy is an emerging um, place of formation through Faith Matters Network. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to your experience as a movement chaplain, maybe what you've seen, but yeah. And what is it also? <laughs> Yeah, so movement chaplaincy is something that we did not, uh, you know, coin the name of. Um, and we it just kind of in the air, you know, has um, two words that people put together when they seem, when it feels right. Um, so, but our particular lineage in it, um, as Faith Matters Network, is that Mickey, my colleague, who you'll be interviewing too, is, has been mentored by Alexia Salvatierra, who is a ELCA Lutheran and Pentecostal pastor. And Alexia did some amazing work creating a peer chaplaincy program among women uh, in Brazil who were experiencing violence of various kinds in their communities. And... Alexia's work to bring some of the lessons learned um, in that peer chaplaincy program, in addition to 
other um, kind of other mentors and models um, inspired Nikki and others to start wanting to cultivate uh, more of a space around movement chaplaincy where where now in this moment in history where now people can um, who can start identifying really claiming like yeah that's what I do that's who I am um, and what it means to me at least, I'll speak mostly what it means to me, is that it's nearly, I mean, in some ways it's really nothing new um, at all because there have always been people in social movements and in communities that are working to change things um, that are attending to the heart of the movement. And sometimes that's like the, the main organizers, it's the main leaders in the community, people like Fannie Lou Hamer, um, who came from rural Mississippi and who was constantly singing and bringing people life in addition to doing deep strategic work um, in the Jim Crow South and extremely risky work. Um, so there were always people who were bringing life to others and bringing soul and making sure people were cared for uh, like holistically and um, who were well held. Always people who have done that. Um, and often it's often been women uh, and queer people, trans people, um, people of color, um, people who are not often getting the resources or whose labor is not seen, like whose emotional labor, whose empathy, whose um, uh, their spiritual work essentially is not seen or identified as like keeping the whole movement together, right? <laughs> uh, like when shit is hard and real. Um, and so we have we live we happen to be lucky to be in a time where that kind of work is being more broadly identified um and um it's within the sort of larger um we see movement chaplaincy as as we've like begun to convene more people around this concept and as mickey and um others involved with this project have like done a lot of interviews with people um sort of elders in that work like we see it as one river within a larger or sorry, one one stream excuse me let's say within a larger um field of healing justice which is um specifically comes from the work of black southern and queer and trans people um organizing within the past decade or so and there's some a lot of good resources that you can link to people about the origins of healing justice um, so movement chaplaincy is is not a term that is going to resonate with everybody um, because it comes specifically from, you know, religious tradition, uh, but it's within the larger world of like care work and the kind of streams of that are connected to healing justice and resilience building within social movements. Um, and that movement chaplaincy gets to kind of come alongside that in a way that brings even more people in uh, to, to offer the work uh, and labor of care and resiliency and like showing up for full people who are a part of movements. It's mm -hmm. powerful. What, um, you know, tangibly or practically is, is a living example of, of something you've been a part of? So um, I think that when I started realizing that like I was operating as a movement chaplain um, or something of that nature was uh, first it started, I would say in Philadelphia when I was, you know, doing this congregation based organizing because I was technically doing communications um, but I often would find myself like in times where 
there was a lot of conflict in the organization or like we were experiencing a big loss in our work and I came because loss happens a lot in organizing. It's like mostly you're just like, it's just con you're just losing like for five years and then you win and then you lose for five years and then you lose for 10, you know, like, so, I mean, we hope it's different, but like, that's the nature of it. So, um, the, I found that people, and that's like, that's just, that's a collective loss, right? Like in, in addition to that, there is individual losses. People lose family members. Um, people die. Uh, people are shot. Um, people are deported. And so I found that like in the, um, in at least in, initially in my work in Philly, um, people were like, I, when I would be around, they would seek me out uh, to listen and to like be, be a person to hold space for them, um, to cry with. And people felt comfortable crying with me or going for a walk or, you know, meeting up one-on-one um, -on -one and just to share what they need to share because our organization, at least at that time, wasn't um, always necessarily making space for that. So I think I noticed that call emerging there and that it was really needed and not being attended to, um, where it was kind of swept to the side, like that listening work. Um, and then in Nashville, I, having like being able to be a part of Faith Matters Network, doing this work at convening people around the concept of movement chaplaincy, there was a specific event that really activated me to pull together a group of people that we called movement cha chaplains um, for an action. It was a counter protest of a white supremacist and neo-Nazi rally about an hour south of Nashville. And the reason we wanted to mobilize people with, with who have skills around like uh, emotional care and trauma and de-escalation and um, a whole bunch of things, herbalists, acupuncturists, you know, people who, um, can work with group dynamics. Uh, the reason we wanted to mobilize those people um, is because that was happening about two months after Charlottesville. And we knew that in Charlottesville, Heather Heyer had died. You know, a lot of other people had gotten beat up. And so we, I think I was certainly approaching that mobilization from a place of recognizing like, okay, <laughs> um, we know that if we only respond to like open, explicit, unashamed neo-Nazis and white supremacists, we're actually missing, we're actually missing, you know, what's really going on with white supremacy in our community because in the reality it was in Nashville, the way white supremacy was vastly affecting black and brown communities that it still is, was through displacement and gentrification, through police brutality, um, all of which was operating within a uh, seemingly progressive white power structure, um, Democrat, you know, often Democrats. So on the one hand, we were conscious that, um, that like we, we couldn't solely respond to these like open, explicit, like out there racists. And on the other hand, people were responding no matter what. So like there was gonna be like, people were going, people were going to counter protests, um, people of all backgrounds. Um, and that, um, I, I knew, you know, I had a lot of friends who were responding and organizing in response. Um, people who had done some work in Shelbyville in the past with immigrant communities there. Um, and I started going to just basic harm reduction mode. Like I knew, I just didn't want any, one of my friends to be killed. Mm. 
So I um, wanted people there who could be of support if things got really, really violent, uh, either on part of the police or on part of the white supremacists um, or in some you know, conflicts between them. So we did that and it, I think it made a difference. Um, it turns out that the way the police have separated protesters and counter protesters. Um, there were about about 200, like 250 white supremacists that showed up, um, who were who were you know were there. They were there in shields. They were there in like um, quasi military armor, chanting "blood and soil," chanting "Jews will not replace us," praying. They were praying. Um, which I remember pretty explicitly um, and shouting really, really, really violent things. Uh, so anyway, so it turns out that the police set up barricades so that like they did a lot of security checking um, so that like they weren't bringing in spears and spikes and stuff. Um, and that there was, it didn't, it, it did not result in the kind of like street fighting that happened in Shelbyville. Oh, sorry. That happened in Charlottesville prior. Um, but it was still, of course, deeply violent and traumatic for the whole community to even have that happen in their town. Um, and for the counter protesters that showed up that witnessed. Um, so we were there um, giving people blankets, you know, the counter protesters blankets, um, de-escalating um, to keep our people safe, um, water, you know, um, my friend Sarah Green led some grounding rituals for people. I coordinated with a safe, basically with a church locally that was a safe house. So if people needed to be there um, for medical care. So that's one way that movement chaplaincy has shown up for me. But I think that I've come to recognize that like almost in some ways even more important than being able to show up in that particular way, like mobilizing in reaction to a crisis uh, for, or for a big action or um, is, is all of the in-between. So like the work of social change is deeply exhausting um, and full of, like I mentioned before, a lot of everyday losses and trauma and grief. Um, and the, um, you know, particularly when it's like in the communities that like are getting the most hell. So what I, in my, stream of relationships in Nashville, I was mostly showing up around um, resisting ICE in these past few years and was deeply, most deeply in relationship with, with immigrant organizers um, at a worker center called Workers' Dignity, Dignidad Obrera, so shout out to my friends. Um, and then the kind of streams of community defense work, work that arose in response to the threats of ICE raids and other ICE activity. So in the midst of that, in I kind of in a more strategic or like oh, not more strategic, or like in a more like organizing way I was helping build a network of sanctuary congregations in Nashville um, but also I would say the movement chaplaincy piece on top of that was that I was um, just kind of in the I, I was able to help listen when there was conflict um, about the nature and direction of things, I was able to show up for people emotionally um, and like be a, I think, pretty fairly trustworthy person um, to, um, to go to in times of hardship and loss. Um, 
and a victory and celebration, right? Because I was thinking about how hospital chaplaincy, which I did when I did CPE, mirrors movement chaplaincy a lot in that like when someone is ill, you like a lot of the time it's just waiting around and like doing like everyday kinds of tests, you know, like everyday like little interventions and like it's working or it's not working and it's just like exhausting. Um, and then there might be one big crisis, right? Where something terrible happens and like someone's losing blood or someone is um, not able to breathe. And then like all the resources get mobilized and like suddenly you need to like go into action mode and like get every, you know, to get the people there. You need to get the doctors there. You need to like do crowd control. You need to get someone water. You need to get someone a hamburger. <laughs> you need to um, uh, like call in a, pa you know, call in their pastor or a therapist or like, their mama or you know their grandma or like an aunt they need to talk to um go for a walk um like help someone scream right so there's like that happens in a crisis and then also like when there's a victory when something in someone's health journey unfolds and like things are getting better like say someone needs a, like finally gets a, a kidney or a heart and then suddenly after years of waiting you go into to action mode you know <laughs> and you um show up for that and you make sure everyone is there to celebrate and that they have the space that they need. And it's, I, I find that to be a, there's a similar um, kind of constant work and like fluctuating pace of escalation and de-escalation um, that happens in, in activism and organizing and the ability to be present through all of it and to have a capacity for discernment and what's needed um, to like keep people's souls well is, and to do a spiritual assessment along the way is something that I feel like I'm consistently learning and that I feel like we can actually like better learn how to do together when we train each other up in those kinds of skills. So that's, that's to me why, why identifying as a movement chaplain or like helping train other people in it, um, giving people that title to, to resonate with is hopeful and empowering in that like there's a whole world of things that, that happen that are often, um, that we can do even better, right? So that like every time we're going through these cycles and just like pushing forward, pushing, like giving birth to this new world that like we have the kinds of spiritual resources that we need to do it even more powerfully. Yeah, yeah, it, it is empowering and it's um, incredibly hopeful that what you're speaking about, what I hear in that is, um, that anyone who is listening like yes chaplaincy is a vocational call mm -hmm. and also each each person um has has the invitation and the capacity to practice what it is that you're talking about day moments and and also um now because of faith matters network and others to to hone those skills even deeper mm -hmm. and to discern mm -hmm. Um, what context those skills can be used in and so I love that it's 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 the love and the power of of the people to take an expert to do this to do this work and and so I I just I really appreciate um, you and I appreciate mm -hmm. what your team at or the team at Faith Matters mm -hmm. Network is doing um, and in the ways that you are showing up and being mm -hmm. such a beloved friend to so many people um, and risking, like you said. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I'm wondering, Margaret, as we, 
sort of close out our time. Mm -hmm. If there are any um, parting words of wisdom, um, anything that you want to make sure that our listeners hear you hear you speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that to that what you to what you just said about this is ideally something we want everyone to be doing. This is this is really this is something we've thought about a lot, right? It's like the pros and cons of of sort of naming, giving somebody a name, um, and uh, creating some structure, you know, lines around it. Like there's always blessings and cur blessings and curses to that. Um, and I just talked about what the blessing is, right? Is that it helps people help people understand what they're doing. Um, and to like get better and better at it um, and to like be seen in what they're doing, which is really helpful. Um, we, um, we don't want to like overly professionalize an idea of movement chaplaincy so that it becomes inaccessible in the same way that being a hospital chaplain is inaccessible, right? Or being a ordained clergy person is inaccessible. Um, so we are wanting to be really careful with not over-professionalizing. Um, and at the same time, living into, like helping people live into this vocation identity in a way that is fruitful for themselves and others around them. And that does so in a way that disrupts the, um, like what is problematic about chaplaincy. So like when I'm inspired a lot by Alexia Sabatier's quote that um, she actually shared in an interview with our team, um, is that like movement chaplaincy is not something you do to people. Mm. It's something that you do with people. Mm. That should be true of all chaplaincy, right? <laughs> but we definitely see it, that not being the case, right? We see chaplaincy being used as evangelism. We see chaplains um, transgressing their authority in, in like hurtful ways. We see chaplains just being like, just bad. <laughs> it's like mediocre as fuck, like, and <laughs> like in these critical times. But we want to, um, yeah, I think it's exciting to be able to figure out like what is actually good chaplaincy look like and the good movement chaplaincy that that honors and acknowledges that the point is actually be able to come alongside people who are healing themselves, mm. you know, who are actually in their own capacities for spiritual strength um, and meaning making, and that like whole movements are doing that themselves. So that ideally, we, you wouldn't need movement chaplains, mm. um, and yet to have someone who specifically can like live into that piece and be looking out for people and helping, helping um, be a mirror to like the kinds of strengths people already have inside of them, the kind of spiritual resources they have inside of them, especially when things are really stressful and especially when um, everyone is in like survival, like reptilian brain, it can be really helpful <laughs> to, to um, have the, the people who are there to notice and to focus on um, what, what needs to be nourished. Mm -hmm. Mm. the work of nourishing yeah absolutely and nurturing yeah absolutely it's incredibly well said and stated um i'm really glad you're in this work <laughs> thanks this is an honor to talk to you about it Also, congratulations on your ordination, which just happened this weekend. The church is so lucky to have you 
And Kelsey and I send you all of our strength and power and love and encouragement as you continue to pursue the work God has called you to do. So we're going to close this episode with a song from Margaret. But before we close, Kelsey and I wanted to announce that we are going to officially take some sabbatical time uh, from the Theosophia podcast. So this will be our last regular interview episode. Kelsey and I will do one more episode together for the season before the end of the year to wrap things up. But we'll take this time to recalibrate and reformulate how we do the podcast. So stay tuned on our social media outlets to hear more as we get closer to the end of the year. We'll put out another announcement. All right. So Margaret spoke about singing and singing is something she likes to bring into the spaces she's in when it's asked for and when it's needed. And as a part of her accompaniment of immigrant communities fighting ICE in the past years in Nashville, before moving back to Philadelphia, she learned the song and led it with friends at actions and meetings and protests. It's adapted from a song used often in climate justice movements, and it's called The People Gonna Rise. She wanted to share this version that has been sung in Nashville as a closing blessing for her friends and movement family there who are responding in the wake of a horrifying incident in the past couple weeks in Nashville in which an ICE officer shot a man he was trying to detain when that man tried to exercise his rights. People gonna rise like the water, we're gonna calm this crisis down. I hear the voice of my great-granddaughter saying shut down ice right now. The people gonna rise like the water, we're gonna calm this crisis down. I hear the voice of my great-granddaughter saying shut down ice right now. The people gonna rise like the water, we're gonna calm this crisis down. I hear the voice of my great-granddaughter saying shut down ice right now. The people gonna rise like the water, we're gonna calm this crisis down. I hear the voice of my great-granddaughter saying shut down ice right now. The people gonna rise like the water, we're gonna calm this crisis down. I hear the voice of my great-granddaughter saying shut down ice right now. So here's the actual parts. You know, the first part is easy. The people gonna rise like the water. We're gonna calm this crisis down. I hear the voice of my great granddaughter saying, Shut down ice right now. Here's the second harmony, a third up from that. People gonna rise. Then it goes, The people gonna rise. One third up. The people gonna rise like the water. They're gonna calm this crisis down. I hear the voice of my great granddaughter saying, Shut down ice right now. Now you're gonna go a little bit further up. The people 
Maybe you can do a um, cadence, if you will, just a little filler part. It goes like this. The people gonna rise. The people gonna rise. The people gonna rise. The people gonna rise. However long people can hold that. And then you can even go farther up than that. So you could do, the people gonna rise. But just get some water, because that's pretty high. All right, love you all.